With regards to the Scorpio, the central figure in Scorpio is Hercules. And so the entire myth of Hercules and his 12 labours, but specifically that one battling the nine-headed hydra, is associated with Scorpio. I just want to remind you that there's a Alice Bailey book called The Labours of Hercules, which I just brought in. This particular book goes into these um, 12 labours of Hercules. The interesting thing about this particular book, just a little bit of background for all of you, is that DK provided the old commentary on the labours of Hercules, and I, I've got a manuscript on it, which I was interpreting for a while, and I had to stop because I had many other things to do. However, oh, Alice Bailey died, and so it was never finished by Alice Bailey, and some other initiate had filled in the gap and took, in the, took the place of Alice Bailey, who is unknown to us and finished in the the rest of the the labours of Hercules. So I just thought I'd bring that, and it's, a, it's quite a good book to read, and it's a supplement to, to esoteric astrology. D.K. obviously had another disciple, you know, that he could give the telepathic instructions to, um, to finish off the work. But I just thought I'd let you all, all know that, because it's... I, pointed out earlier when we're going into Libra that the ninth creative hierarchy, which is humanity, is governed by Scorpio. So it's the the sign that governs the human kingdoms and its trials and tests and struggles upon this planet. And it's quite obvious to you, or it would be obvious to you if you understood the attributes of the sign Scorpio how relevant that is with all of the the fields of testings associated with the nine heads of the hydra and you can see the full panoply of those heads of the hydra in all of humans emotions and mental emotions and desire body afflicting everyone everywhere the first thing to note with scorpio is that it is the polar opposite of taurus Taurus is the, the field of desire. It actually establishes the function of desire in the solar system. It's a very it's an esoteric, it's a cosmic sign in that the astral plane, the cosmic astral plane, is very much governed by Taurus, the the Pleiadian impetus. But what Scorpio does is that it particularizes that field of desire. In as I've um, pointed out a bit earlier, the field—it's the in terms of human emotions and all of those attributes. All of you that have actually read Greek myths should have some understanding of Hercules and his labors. In any case, the. Significant part of it was when he was young, one of the things he did was kill a lion, um, I think it's called a Nemophian lion, with a club, technically with his bare hands, anyway, with a club. After he killed the lion, he took off the skin and wore it as his clothing, as his robe. The lion represents the attributes of pride, of self-consciousness, of the ahamkara, the ego-forming um, attributes of a personality. Everything that is um, the I, the me, the mine. And 
so if we interpret the myth at an early age, Hercules actually worked upon this and eliminated his pride, his aspects to do of the self. In my way to Shambhala, I've gone into the Hercules myth a little bit, just as a, um, a sort of anecdotal note to you, that he is actually a historical figure and appeared in the sign Leo, which was incredibly, well, just I think about the time of the fall of Atlantis or just before. And he is actually an incarnation of the second Buddha of activity, which is an early, the precursor to our present Christ. As you know, the Senakumara has a throne, sits on the throne, and underneath him, supporting the throne, are three Buddhas of activity. The first one was originally the god Osiris of the Egyptian mythology. The second one, and that was the first ray, or the first ray vowed by the third, and then the second one is the the Christ principle of the ancient old hierarchy, old Shambhala, which is the second Buddha of activity. And the story of Hercules and the myth of Hercules and his 12 labors, which you can see is going around the 12 signs of the zodiac. And in each sign doing a particular labor relating to the mastery of that petal of the heart chakra, which then establishes the qualities of hierarchy. So his energy is essentially blue. And as a the result of all those labors, he was admitted into the Greek Olympus as a god. So he was a mortal that became a god. And this symbolizes the establishment of the originating aura of our present hierarchy. Then the third of the Buddhas of activity is um, the one called Hermes. Trismegistus, and I relate in Shambhala how he was the responsible for the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza just a bit before two and a half thousand years BC. He is a divine mathematician bearing the third ray into manifestation and established all of the the great codified wisdom teachings of of hierarchy in Shambhala in geometry of that pyramid. So that's just a little bit of background information for you to do with the myth of Hercules. You'll read it when you finally do get to read the Shambhala book. I explore one or two of the myths there in some depths. This particular card deals specifically with the ninth labor of Hercules and which is to kill the nine-headed hydra. I explained to you a bit earlier the fact that the lion's pelt was what he wore. The symbolism of his prowess. He was a, a, a Leo, he was a sun initiate. Um, this was Hercules. And therefore the, the pelt and the whole concept of the pelt, of course, as you all know, is the aura. is the quality of the radiance of the aura that he wore. And this particular case was the golden cube through the mastery of pride or egotism. In this particular card, we see that the predominant colour is red or red-orange. And because this is a desert, it's the desert of materiality of samsara itself, and specifically that relating to the fifth root race, 
the Aryan epoch that came into dominance after the fall of Atlantis. Now, all of us live in this dry, deserty landscape of materialism where there's not much uh, spirituality around or true spirituality to, to, to sucker us. It's all, you know, the inhospitality of of human emotions and desires and all of that. So when you look at the card, you see that the desert landscape is full of cactus with lots of prickles, venomous snakes. Of course, there's the scorpion. It's quite an inhospitable place to reside because that's the way human emotions and nature are. Those um, prickles are they're defensive in nature. You, you rub them the wrong way or you talk to them in the wrong manner and suddenly out come the prickles that, you know, that they're reacting. And, of course, others are very, very critical. And the critical nature of, of human beings is also the, the prickles, the barbs that they show at other people because of their intolerance, their, their narrow-mindedness and all of those attributes, which is this desert well, the, the green is a little bit of, of healthy life here and there. The green relates to Atma, and it's, it's that which um, nourishes, which um, provides life. It's not like it's all just totally, you know, deadly. There are some aspects of it. It's the green <laughs> with the defensive prickles. And, um, of course, the adders. Now, the symbolism of the snake is, of course, that it bears venom, but it's more than that because you've got the entire symbolism of the transmutation of the Adder or the Death Adder um, into a dragon of life there, you know, the arising of Kununi, which happens in the sign of Scorpio also because it's the sign of the yogi, the yogin. This is what Hercules essentially is. It's the one that can master that entire landscape and awaken the serpent power. So you have at the very front there uh, one or two adders quite conspicuously displayed to show that, yes, the scorpion bears a lot of poison, can be very, quite venomous with regards to their dealings with other human beings, but at the same time, the transmuted poison is ambrosia. It's the, the liquor of life. And the whole purpose of the, the scorpionic disciple is to transmute that venom into ambrosia. I don't have to go too much into the, the symbolism there. You can see there's lots of uh, prickly things and the whole card in the background is quite busy because of the nature of the human mind and desires and things like that. The other thing that we're just looking at the background of the card in which the this Hercules is battling the Hydra, you have in the sky above an eagle. And this is another aspect of the symbol of the Scorpionic Disciple. Actually, I wouldn't mind asking any of you, if any one of you can think of what the eagle actually means. One interpretation, the all-seeing eye. Far distant vision. So what you've got, therefore, in Scorpio, 
And um, Scorpio is a watery sign, but the the higher attribute of water is the air. And you've got the opening of the eye. So the triumphant disciple opens the third eye from a can look from a vast distance down upon the plains where struggling humanity are undergoing all of their trials and tribulations and seek out the prey to seek out what needs to be done and the swoop down to do that action. So it's the the awakened disciple. Esoterically, the sign of the eagle relates to a fourth degree initiate, one that has awakened this eye and can soar above materialism. So it's the, the ability to fly in the air. I found in the eagle there is another symbolism is uh, related to air. The fact that the eagle can fly extremely high, the eagles in the Andes, uh, they are able to bring in their wings certain energies which are not available close to the planet. Symbolically, it's, it is symbolizing the, the fact that it can pick up a higher level of mind. Yes, and matter of fact, if you ever look at the pattern of wings, the feathers of the wings, you'll find it's spiralates. So it's the, the spiralate motion of, of consciousness. And so it's the abstract energy of the air, which it brings into manifestation, the high abstract consciousness. And of course, it's rarefied mind. Uh, it's the, the clear light of mind where the eagle soars high above the plains and the heat and the dust and all the rest of it. That is in the... Yeah, the desert below. In the colorations um, you see in the background there, you can see it's either um, early morning or dusk. You, you've got the colors of the mind starting to go into the astral twilight that will eventually become the indigo blue of night or of love. So it's either at the, the morning where the Scorpio is just learning about life, in other words, learning about all the problems of being a human unit, or at the end where one is mastering the, has mastered the life and is entering into the subjective domain. And you can see, sort of contrary to many of the other signs, like this one here of Sagittarius, where you have the nigga blue of the night sky with pinpoints of light, or this one of Libra, which we've been, which is just simply nigga blue. This one is of Scorpio, is really got to do with all the attributes of waking consciousness and astral plane livingness, which is this, in this particular case, the etheric body is symbolized by the the violet and the the lavender color, and then it goes into the astral color with that the turquoise blue. Because one of the main problems with the Scorp- Scorpionic is the astralism, all the attributes of, of emotional vicissitudes and the rest of it that all of you quite well know. But it's also the lower psychic powers. And we'll get into that a little bit later. The other thing you can see in the sky there is one single star. Can anyone tell me what that symbolizes? It can symbolize the star of the morning, which is Venus. And the other star that it can symbolize is Sirius, the, the Lord of Love. Because the Scorpionic disciple, once they master, well, go on to the path of mastery of all of that samsara, they come under the auspices of 
the Syrian Logos, of the Lord of Love. And likewise with Venus, she is a disciple of, of Sirius and she stands as the sole aspect for humanity. So it can be either depending on, you know, one is a disciple of the other. So that looms, as you can see, in the far distant background, esoterically is what governs the struggling disciple to overcome their personality allurements. I hope you're all enjoying this description of Scorpio. It's quite a lovely sign, isn't it? Intriguing. So from daylight through the colours of desire and then the etheric and astral conquest of astral space. Essentially, the whole tenor of the Scorpionic sign is the mastery of astral space, of the waters, of the emotions. It's just simply the struggling with the emotions until they are mastered. And once they are mastered, the Scorpionic disciple well, the Scorpio disappears and the disciple becomes the eagle instead on its place and soars high above all of that and beyond considerations of, of uh, that whole life of struggle. And, of course, guided by that star, by that one star, which is the star of love. Love is all the disciple needs at this particular stage as they seek downwards um, to look what needs to be done to help that field them then of course not all of it can be helped because as we all know only those can be helped that are willing to help themselves if they're not willing to help themselves then you are wasting a lot of energy and, and creating karma sometimes that's what the scorpionic disciple is always looking for where can the gift of love be applied in such a way that is effective in other words um, how can we help those uh, or you, first of all, you're f looking for those that are struggling and are, are determined to actually master their emotions. And if they're not ready to master their emotions, there's not much you can do for them or with them because they will generally lash out at you and your endeavour to help with all of those prickles of the cactus and uh, or as a death adder or whatever. Um, that they have at their disposal. And of course, all of us that are disciples, that are initiates, we've learnt the hard way uh, this particular lesson of try to help to many of those young ones uh, because of your misguided zeal, because you can see that you can help them, but they're not ready. Therefore, they generally turn at you. And this is one of the signs of the initiation path that you are crucified with the Christ on the cross. That's the scourging that happens um, when Jesus was scourged before he was crucified because all those that he tried to help said crucify him and then they mocked him and scourged him for his wisdom and his compassion and his love. The same is for every other disciple. You've gone through those levels of trying to help and getting the inevitable result from those that don't understand the gifts you hope to bring. And so all this is hidden or veiled in this card. This is in the mean. Okay, learning in Hydra. So that's the, the name of this particular labor. And I might just quickly look at this Destroying the Learning in Hydra. It's page 140 of this particular book. Just to give you some 
background of it. Labour 8, destroying the Lernian Hydra, Scorpio, October the 23rd to November the 22nd. And this is the way D.K. writes it, the myth. The great presiding one, enrobed in radiant calm, said but a single word. The teacher heard the golden command and summoned Hercules, the son of God, who was also the son of man. The light now shines on gate the eighth, the teacher said. In ancient Argos, a drought occurred. Amimon besought the aid of Neptune. He bade her to strike a a rock, and when she did, out gushed three crystal streams. But soon a hydra made his dwelling there. Beside the river, Amimon the festering swamp of Lerner stands. Within this noisome bog, the monstrous hider lies, a plague upon the countryside. Nine heads this creature has, and one of them is immortal. Prepare to battle with this loathsome beast. Think not that common means will serve. Destroy one head, two grows apace. Expectantly Hercules waited. One word of counsel only I may give, the teacher said. We rise by kneeling, we conquer by surrendering, we gain by giving up. Go forth, O son of God and son of man, and conquer. Through the gate the eighth, then Hercules passed. The stagnant swamp of Lerna was a blot dismaying all who came within its confines. Its stench polluted all the atmosphere within a space of seven miles. When Hercules approached, he had to pause, for the smell alone well nigh overcame him. The oozing quicksands were a hazard, and more than once Hercules quickly withdrew his foot, lest he be sucked downward by the yielding earth. At length he found the lair where dwelt the monstrous beast. Within a cavern of perpetual night, the hydra lay concealed by day and night, Hercules haunted the treacherous fen, awaiting a propitious time when the beast would sally forth. In vain he watched. The monster way stayed within his fetid den. Restoring to a stratagem, Hercules dipped his arrows in burning pitch and rained them straight into the yawning cavern where dwelt the hideous beast. A stirring and commotion thereupon ensued. The hydra, its nine angry heads, breathing flame emerged, its scaly tail lashed furiously the water and the mud, bespattling Hercules. Three fathoms high, the monster stood, a thing of ugliness that looked as if it had been made of all the foulest thoughts conceived since time began. The hydra sprang, sprang at Hercules and sought to coil about his feet. He stopped aside and dealt it such a crushing blow that one of its heads was immediately severed. No sooner had this horrid head fallen into the bog than two grew in its place. Again and again Hercules attacked the raging monster, but it grew stronger, not weaker, with each assault. So I'll just stop there for a few minutes. So here we have DK's old commentary translation which is um, packed with cosmological symbolism it would take me you know maybe a hundred pages to properly explain this of my normal writing but in terms of interpreting from our human point of view you can see the emotions the way people normally sort of tackle their emotions they they strike at one motion 
and suddenly two appear in its place. And all the time these little wiggling serpents of the emotions that come up and come up and come up. And it seems to be a never-ending battle that the average disciple is going through. And of course the, the den of the emotions and the entire watery, watery world that human beings have created through their emotions is this festering swamp of learner. I often use the term swamp of learner when we talk about the emotions and now you have a good idea what is meant by this particular myth. And most of you, I mean most of us now have quite refined emotions and we rarely ever sink down into the swamp of learner. But the average human being is a different story and they're completely creating that. And it produces all of their warlike tendencies and many of those attributes of which, for instance, I sent you videos and things to look at and things to, to read up as to how this swamp is created and continuously um, agitated. Of course, it produces those human wars. and It's a horror story, to, to be just put in short. Yes? Does the, when he says the seven-mile radius, does that relate to the seven planes of perception? Yeah, all the seven subplanes of each plane. Yes, everything has got no, three fathoms deep. It's the, the mental plane, the astral plane, and the physical plane. So it's, it's all veiled in our esoteric symbolism. You can imagine Hercules there with his club. He's bashing away at these heads and he's a very strong man, the son of God and son of man. And every time he knocks off one head, two grow in its place. And it can be quite infuriating. Let's go into the myth of um, what happens or how to actually tackle this particular monster and how to defeat it. And it's not really by confronting those heads direct on. On the knees. Oh yes, you it's got it. Interesting, like when when at the beginning of the story, the the few sentences they give him really do tell him exactly what to do. Say, you know, be on your knees and give up. Yes, yes, of course. It's it's like with all disciples, you can give them lots of good advice. You know, <laughs> doing it all the time. Spent her whole life giving good advice to her students and things, um, but whether they listen to it. It's another thing. They'll say, yes, yes, and they'll nod their head by giving it to them, and then they very quickly forget. But when they're serious, when they're actually battling and they really want to battle this Hydra at a particular time, that well-founded advice springs into their head, and then they know what to do. But in between that, they're normally egotistical, and they think they can do it their own way or whatever, and it just doesn't work. Okay, again and again, Hercules attacked the raging monster, but it grew stronger, not weaker with each assault. Then Hercules remembered what his teacher had said. We rise by kneeling. Casting aside his club, Hercules knelt, grasped the hydra with his bare hands, and raised it aloft. Suspended in midair, its strength diminished. On his knees then, he held the hydra high above him, that purifying air and light might have its due effect. So basically what happens is when the disciple is busy bashing at those heads, they do it with their pride aspect, with their will, the strength of their personality will, with ego. And it's only in humbleness when you get on your knees and you pray to God and you, you invoke the energies and in sincere humbleness and you have to bring that 
beast out of its lair, out of the emotional world, place it up in the in the air where the sunlight, the, the light of the soul, can work upon it and there it shrivels up and dies. And so that's the methodology, not with pride, not with the strength of the force of the personality will, but in humbleness, removing it from the very foundation of its strength, which is that watery um, swamp of learner. Um, I also got the other idea that, like, you know, when the hydra is in its swamp, it, it's hidden, right? You know, mm. he actually has to extract it. So um, it's it's all about, you know, acknowledging your issues as well and lifting them up for everyone. Once it's fully exposed, can it be dealt with rather than sort of a half-truth or a... Yeah, most people do not recognise their own faults, their own emotions, and and so basically Hercules had to get the arrow, remember, arrows, fired into that cave of where people have buried their emotions and glossed it over with a via of of um, loving emotions or or thinking that they were right, and so you actually have to sting them into compliance and to to show them what those emotions really are and what they do. So other than that, it won't come out. Uh, people are very good at hiding their emotions, their mental emotions. They have all sorts of excuses not to deal with those things, especially when it relates to their desires, because they like their desires. They like all those things that uh, keep them entertained, etc., but which you know is deadly for their spiritual growth and pain-producing and karma-producing and so forth. You can see why I decided to read out this particular labour, because it's quite important, and you can see why I like the sign a lot. On his knees, then, he held the hydra high above him, that purifying air and light my habits affect, the monster strong in darkness and in slouchy mud soon lost its power when the rays of the sun and the touch of the wind fell upon it. Convulsively it strove, a shudder passing through its loathsome flame. Fainter and fainter grew its struggles, to the victorious, a victory was won. The nine heads dropped, drooped, and then with gaping mouths and glazing eyes felt limpid forward. But only when they lifeless head did Hercules perceive the mystic head that was immortal. Then Hercules cut off all of the hydras, or cut off the hydras one immortal head and buried it, still fiercely hissing beneath a rock. Returning, Hercules stood before the teacher. The victory is won, the teacher said. The light that shines at gate the eight is now blended with your own. This particular immortal head, what do you think it symbolizes any of you? And one, one thing that I did not have mentioned here, and it's not mentioned in this story, is the body, the whole body of the hydra. What do you think that body is? Fear. Not so much fear. One other... Ignorance. ignorance. And that's the ignorance, the head of ignorance that's immortal. Because all the time you're battling with ignorance, different levels of ignorance. And so it's hidden um, beneath a rock, if you wish, because there's always more to learn. So that's your mortal head. And so you you chop it off and, and you keep that in a sense. Everything else dies because that is what you're always working upon. So it's the symbolism of you putting it under a rock? Uh, the rock is, it's in a sense, samsara. 
it's buried, it's there, it's living, but it's weighed down with the things yet to be learnt. The rock is the, the weight of the mind itself, or whatever level of mind you want to look up, all the way up to cosmic mind. And so it's always, as long as there is incarnation, materialism, there is something to conquer. There's ignorance to overcome, or whatever level it is. And that's what the initiations are, is it not? It's just overcoming one level of ignorance after the other. And so you get to the first initiation, and you strive for the second, and you go to the third, and so at the end of each initiation, there's a door of revelation of mysteries. And then you experience that enlightenment, and then, lo, there's another lot of tests to go through before the next level of ignorance is mastered and so and so it's these doors that's the rock as you can see with astrology esoteric astrology and this addendum here they're well worth reading and you can spend your whole life just interpreting these myths okay here we are this note here on page 140 beginning with scorpio the statement of the myth will be written by dr francis merchant as no further copy of the Tibetan was found among the papers of AAB. He has used the best available material, but for the details of the story, casting it in the iambic cadence of the old commentary. So there's the name of the person that took over from AAB, um, Dr. Francis Merchant. And I'm sure, of course, he just simply <laughs> um, got the comms straight from... Okay, so when you look at the my card, then you can see I've got him, the Hercules, at the moment when he actually lifts the Hydra out of its swamp. He's getting onto his knees and he's thrown off his the lion's skin because he can't battle this Hydra with his former concepts. He has to stand totally naked and think this whole problem out himself. His club has been put down, his bow and arrows. All of his weapons had to go, his old weapons. It served him well with his other labours because for this one he is naked and he has to learn to grapple this monster, this nine-headed monster with his bare hands and get on his knees in humbleness and remember the lion skin does symbolize the pride of of the, the ego um, of the mind that must be also cast aside eventually the battle is won. The heads of the Hydra all of you should pretty well know by now the, the nine heads of the qualities we have um, our little posters and things so I'll go through them quickly. They're in three groups of three, um, ruled by various signs. Well, let's start off with the um, control of the, the physical domain. And we have the sex head of the Hydra, governed by Scorpio itself. And you have to develop, transmute your sexual desires and last for service and right human relationships. So it's right human relationships. That's basically what people are learning through their sexual samskaras, how to relate to the other rightly, how to relate in a loving disposition to produce the child of the fruits of your labor, of your relationship. So the other head is governed by Taurus, and it's the um, material comforts head of the hydra and you know how much material comforts rules this world this particular head 
it's the consumer society, you know, buy, 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 spend, 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 make yourself as opulent, as, as perspicuously outward showy as possible. If you can't afford it, it doesn't matter. You've got a credit card, put yourself in hock over your head and worry about the day when you have to pay off all your bills later. That's um, this Torian head. And it, you have to develop desirelessness. Just simply what you need for your service work, for basic and you know basic comforts around you, the aesthetic beauty of working with the divas to be shown. So it's this modest lifestyle which we all live. It's nice, isn't it, uh, that um, none, none of us are actually following this path, ostensibly wealthy as such, just can't be. The next one is selfishness, which is the Aquarian head. And so you will understand the way that this particular head must be battled and you have to produce unselfishness in all of your thought, words and deeds. Just simply you have to learn to give selflessly. That's what all of us disciples are doing. And we are often battling of our little selfishnesses, but on the whole, all the major ones have gone. Hydra heads don't matter too much. The astral or the watery aspect of the Hydra's heads, fear, hate and ambition. Yeah, so cancer is fear and you have to develop all forms of fearlessness. And of course these are the big problems of most um, disciples. This, this watery head, this is where the main focus of the battle lies. Hatred, and hatred also has got its aspects of dislikes for things, dislikes for other disciples, other religions and so forth and all of that must go just simply manifest loving kindness in its place. This is actually Aries. Oh no, so sorry I've gone the wrong, I'm looking at mental, yeah. Fear, hate and ambition are the three for the design mind. Pride is Leo and must be turned into humbleness. Separativeness is Virgo and must be turned into the sense of oneness. Cruelty is Capricorn and must be turned into harmlessness. And these aspects, you know, can look at. So that's what he's battling. And um, again, as I said, you can think of Hercules as a yogi or yogini working upon these in the desert, so sitting cross-legged and meditating counter all of these attributes and the other thing to do with this is that what the scorpionic disciple specifically develops is the the lower cities we can't really talk about scorpio unless we go into the the consequence of the mastery of this um, watery world of the swamp of learner and you've got the lower cities so it's the the clairvoyance when this happens, you're not just battling the the heads, you're battling the Dark Brotherhood. These, this particular Hydra is also the entire Dark Brotherhood governed by these nine signs. And each one of them, your past samskaras come to the surface and the DB must be tackled. And so sign, especially in relationship to the second initiation, which this sign specifically um, relates to, and then finally the fourth, which is the highest aspect, the higher correspondence of that, you're dealing with psychicism, the all the lure of the lower psychic powers that many disciples fall prey to. 
um, sex magic, black magic, witchcraft, sorcery, all of this type of aspect, you know, that they go into drugs, the experience of drugs. So it's uh, all of this is actually veiled in the heads. We don't mention this so much exoterically, though I do mention in my writings. But it's something that all that uh, us scorpions and that working upon the mastery of their waters have to also go through and conquer is the, the lure of lower psychic powers. And as you know, especially in the Western world, that lure is very great because they like to think of themselves as uh, having psychic powers by which they can glamour their devotees with, uh, Hindu yogis, etc., do this. And, of course, sex magic is very, very uh, powerful aspect of the sex head of the hydra if it's not properly mastered. So um, Vail and all of these nine heads are also their related cities, related psychic powers. That said, we can move on. As you can see, it's quite a easy sign in many ways to explain, but there's a lot to it. The exoteric key word or key phrase for this sign is the battlefield of desire. And I shouldn't have to explain this much. You all understand because that's what we've been talking about, the battlefield of desire. The esoteric key phrase is the triumphant disciple because once you've battled with all of that and you've overcome your lower lumens, you're the triumphant disciple, you can enter the door of initiation in Capricorn after you fire the arrows there too in Sagittarius next time. And for the initiate, it is the sword bearer of the Lord of Life. So the sword bearers that they're the warrior for the Lord. And they use the sixth ray um, exoterically it's the sixth ray that rules Scorpio, so they use the sixth ray in zealous fighting for the, the will of the Lord of Shambhala. And so they're Exemplary initiative. And the cross is part of the fixed cross of the heavens, as you all know, and that is, of course, the pole opposite is Taurus. Then you have Leo and Aquarius. The signs are Mars, Mars, and Mercury. Exoterically, Mars, which is the field of desire, the sixth row of devotion and zealotism and all of that, is what actually has governed the, uh, this entire Piscean era. And the Christian dispensation, it's also the energy that governs America. That's one reason why we have this extremism of, of America that, that I keep on complaining about, as you all know. But it's one of the main reasons it's, it's governed by the sixth ray. And so what you see in that particular country is the worst aspects of the, the swamp of learner that have come to the surface. And battling that particular hydra is very difficult. Esoterically... So anyway, we don't need to go too much into Mars, the god of war. So this virile energy can be used to exemplify all emotional attributes or converse the yogi or yoginis that is using the same energy to battle those elements 
and that of course is done esoterically with Mars. So exoterically it produces the swamp and all those heads of the Hydra. That's exoterically and esoterically it's the uh, Hercules using the strength of his bare hands etc to lift it up out of the Hydra. So you've got to use the same energy just in a transmitted fashion. And then we've got Mercury as the hierarchical ruler because there you have the entire caduceus stuff of Hermes of the twisted serpents producing the wings of spirit and the soul and the awakening of the Kundalini and everything that relates to the development of, of wisdom. So this in a, in a nutshell is your quite complex sign of battle, struggle, strife, <laughs> tribulation, pain and then repetition of that again and again until eventually you say enough is enough I'm going to have to do something about this this miserable sort of existence and so you just struggle to become a disciple and, and overcome all those problems and eventually and also you know, when we're talking about the psychic, the lower psyche, as you probably all gather, it's also therefore the healer, the, the sign of the healer, the mercury, the caduceus stuff is also the emblem that the medical profession uses for a specific reason. Because it brings into manifestation the buddhic energy, the energies of the air, a the gift of the eagle that works through the nadi system to heal the physical plane ailments. Any questions? You haven't said anything about the um, sacred geometry. Oh, the the geometry in the uh, the geometry in the picture really is a series of triads, a series of triads making making their heads, and they all interlinked, and then eventually, though there's nine there, you'll find that if we go around, we'll uh, well, it'd be two times nine, eighteen. What you're really looking at is, I think because I haven't extended this geometry, I haven't looked at it for years and years and years, is hexagrams interrelated. The pentagrams... Uh, the pentagram, because inside the pentagram you have a sign. Oh, yes. The pentagram... Um, I would have to do this geometry again, because it's one of my future manuscripts when I go into all of this. The pentagrams, of course, are the mind. And so what we have there is the geometry of a chakra, the internal workings of a chakra. There's 20... Uh, when you get the four pentagrams going in four directions, then you get 20 points. And then from that, in this particular case, I've drawn triads, which are the beginning of the drawing of lotus blossom, you know, the petals of the, the lotus. And so I'm really just looking at the, the geometry of Ephric space of the Nadi system there, because the whole... Tests and, and trials and tribulations, you know, the, the battle is over the control of the Nadis and the transmutation of samskaras associated with them and the awakening of the petals of the various flowers that are the chakras. And so the entire Nadi system. The heads, as I said, are the petals of, of various petals of the lotus. So what you're really looking at, as I said, is the transmutation of each samskara or the various samskaras associated with the various heads of the hydra as you're turning the petals of the chakras or as the wheel turns from cycle to cycle for each chakra. So you go through the entire nadi system 
the minor chakras, the major chakras, and all the time you're battling with the samskaras. And this particular process is described in the three books, in the sense that are now in the process of being published. The Mandala book, the Bhattatodal, and the meditation book. So it's all got to do with the internal circulation of of the yogi or the yogini as they battle with the hydra. Because, of course, we don't sort of battle with clubs and things like that, or our hands even. We go inwards and we deal with the the energies as they come to the surface and they they produce effects within us. And you don't like the energies, you don't like that feeling or sensation, you don't want to go into that emotion. And so you're actually working upon a particular petal of a chakra. And so the pentagrams and the, the triads or the basis of the underlying grid work of the Nadi system is based on the pentagram and then the flowers themselves are based on the hexagram. And so you get repetition of, of patterns of the way that they manifest eventually as squares and things like that. A whole which okay. Any other questions? I, I have a question. Uh, when somebody is born with a Scorpio ascendant, does it mean that he's that he is ahead of a, a disciple life? Generally, generally, if, if the ascendant is Scorpio, it generally means this battling of discipleship. Generally, it does mean that, but it can also mean for an average human beings, lots of emotions. And so they're going through a whole field of testing to do with their emotions. So if you're looking at the disciple, it means if there's the ascendant there, that they're working towards passing testings of initiations, and it means, therefore, the ascendant really is their future, meaning means, therefore, that they're working to have a life of hardship, struggles, tests, tribulations. The average Scorpion is, you know, martial, warlike, you know, fierce emotions uh, that can be quite intense. They can be also very, very loving. So Scorpio and, of course, the other major water sign, Cancer, two difficult signs to deal with. Even if you, if you pass whatever hardships you have, you have other in front of you, but they are a different kind. They are far more subtle. Yeah, they're always at a higher and higher level. And they also can be... They can also be, because they are subtler, and because you're much more refined, um, you can be much more bewildered by them. So this is the, the concept of when you um, lose one head, uh, master one head, two more spring in its, in its place. And therefore you get many of the subtle lures of the path, and especially of the psychicism. Because with Mars specifically, and I've mentioned the whole Christian tradition, there you get the ecstasies of the mystic. So it's the, the ecstasy of the mystics, the, the divine communion with, with the concept of God. This is also all scorpionic. It's the, the high points of it, but it's, it's riding... Yes, it's, it's, it's riding on, on the ecstasy of the martial union with the concept of divinity. It's that one-pointedness, sort of the... It's that one point, isn't it? It's yeah, it's also... In it's carried even more to an extreme, in a sense, in Sagittarius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with Scorpio, you have the whole field of desire, so it works through the emotional body, and it produces higher refinements of emotions, intensities of emotions. That also has to be mastered 
until you get to the, the quiet, calm, eagle vision where the emotions are gone. But the battle with the intensity of the emotions, the intensity of, of ecstatic experience is you know, very much scorpionic. And it's also this scorpionic quality and martial quality, and in this particular case it's the mercurial quality that allows Kutumi to use her as a vehicle for so many wonderful visions because it's the astral plane and the refined aspects of the astral plane that she's gained control of. And so to come through that, and then of course to, to write the comms. So it's the triumphant disciple that has purified the waters and lives in the, the rare atmosphere of the highest watery aspect and so the visions and things can come quite easily. Yeah, Saint Scorpio it also produces all those Christian mystics. It actually is the sign that governs the evolution of the mystical path. Well, Pisces is a, is a different sort of aspect. It's another watery sign. So you've got it in Cancer, um, Cancer, Scorpio and Pisces, the three water signs, but Pisces is more death and the, the avatar, whereas Scorpio is the real battle. The, the, the Scorpionic disciple, for instance, you, you see those that, that can produce the severe penance, you know, in Christianity specifically. Christians produce many of these. So they, they can be there with the scourges and, you know, march and sort of um, scourge themselves as they're praying for, for Jesus. In all the religions, it's the mystic. Those that are absolutely sort of are willing to, to sacrifice their lives and and for for their concept of God. It's that which drove the Muslim fanatics. The agony and ecstasy. Yeah, that's right. It's the exquisiteness of the higher refined emotional body, with the martial impotence, the warrior-like impotence. As I said, the sword bearer of the Lord. They're the warriors of the Lord, and and they'll they'll pierce through sort of. There. They can go so much into the mortification of the flesh. They'll starve themselves to near death in order to get the union of God. They think that body is... It's like he wrote the Imitation of Christ. Anyway, for him, because it was such you know, sex was such a problem for him, he actually cut off his penis <laughs> because he didn't want to deal with this member anymore, causing him so much problem. That you know, so this is again the scorpionic sort of mystical tendency of that they can produce that type of it. And of course, as you know, those Persian poets that you like so well—that's what you know, Rumi, etc. That's what they are all talking about—is this experience of the scorpionic experience in um, with with the martial impetus. So they switch from Mars to Mercury all the time. It's a nice sign, is it not? <laughs>